It would take quite some time if we were to spend time right now calling to mind the passages in Scripture that deal with the matter of money. There are a great many passages that deal with the matter of money, the matter of money either directly or indirectly as we consider passages on stewardship and how much you said about being good stewards of of what God has entrusted us with, and of course that's inclusive of, of the physical blessings as well as his entrusting his people with the gospel of Christ, and we're stewards of the gospel, but also stewards of our material blessings, obviously. But then we have direct statements from uh, the lips of our Lord in the great Sermon on the Mount, where he says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust consume, and where thieves break through and steal, but... Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moths nor rust consume and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Paul speaks of the love of money in 1 Timothy 6 being the, the root of all kinds of evil. Jesus again speaks of how difficult it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. That is those who trust in riches, passage after passage after passage from the Lord himself and from the inspired penman of the New Testament that make it abundantly clear that we need to take very seriously the matter of money, that is the matter of our physical possessions, what we have been entrusted with, what we have been blessed to have and to <clears throat> be sobered by the admonition that we see in scripture time and time again to make good use of that. Now tonight we come to the fifth chapter of James in our expository series from this epistle. And as we do, we see James, the inspired penman, issuing a very, very sobering condemnation and, and warning toward the rich in verses 1 through 6 of James 5, our study for tonight. Come now, he writes, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. James certainly does not mince words as he issues this condemnation in verses 1 through 3 issuing the warning to the rich in verses 4 through 6 enumerating the sins of the rich. In this section of the epistle of James there's no indication that James is speaking to Christians, that he's writing to Christians. There are other uh, sections of this epistle that obviously are written to Christians. My brethren, verse uh, 1 of chapter 3, let not many of you become uh, teachers and uh, so forth. Uh, in other passages, he makes it clear, my brethren, back in chapter 1, verse 2, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. 
chapter 2, verse 1, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. My brethren, my brethren, my brethren, clearly addressed there to those who are believers, but no indication in this immediate context that his admonition here, that his pronouncement of woe is, um, is given to Christians here. It seems to be an aside. It seems to be an apostrophe here. As he turns aside, as it were now, to address the rich, perhaps the Jews in immediate context, who were the rebellious uh, Jews who refused to obey, who were wealthy, but also the application would be certainly to anyone who has chosen riches over the spiritual riches of God and Christ. It's not the first time we find a condemnation of the rich in Scripture. Luke 6, 24, the words are this, But woe unto you that are rich, for you have received your consolation. The Lord in Luke 18, 24, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God, as we referenced a few moments ago. And so there is a condemnation of the rich time and again in Scripture. But as we see those condemnations, including the one we're studying tonight, we don't need to get the impression that there's some sort of inherent merit in being poor. And that by being poor, we can ensure our eternal salvation. No, there's nothing inherently good about being poor, nor is there any sin in being rich. And we need to appreciate that. But all who are possessed of a considerable amount of this world's goods should ask themselves some very, very important questions. One, how did I get what I have? How did I get what I have? And secondly, how am I using what I have? How am I enjoying them? How am I using them? And we also need to understand when it comes to the definition of rich that it is a somewhat relative term, isn't it? And that as we look around us, we can see those who, who have less in terms of material goods than we have even in, in the community in which we live. But certainly if we go beyond the borders, not only of this community, but this country, we can see those who have far, far less than we are blessed to have. And so Americans, generally speaking, are rich by comparison with those elsewhere in the world. It is a contrast, isn't it, generally speaking, rather than a comparison. And so we need to appreciate what we have and need to ask ourselves these questions because whether we deem ourselves to be rich or deem ourselves to be uh, somewhat uh, poor or uh, middle, middle class or however we define ourselves, we nonetheless cannot say that we have not been blessed with material blessings, those of us who are here tonight, and certainly... We need to use them properly and certainly need to avoid falling under the condemnation that James issues here against those who were obviously not using what they had and not using them for God. He says to them, weep and howl. Come now, you rich, weep and howl. That phrase, weep and howl, that call for them to weep and howl is a picture of the retribution and the judgment that will come at the end of the age upon all those who have lived in the manner that James is describing here. Weep and howl for what? For your miseries, your hardship, your sufferings, the great distresses that are coming upon you that are absolutely certain because of the path 
that you have chosen. And in view of such a destiny, these ought even now to begin to weep and howl. He says you can begin now to weep and howl over your ultimate destiny because it is coming. Verse 2, your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Notice, though, the emphasis should be here on your. Your riches are corrupted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Again, he is not saying that all riches are corrupted. He is not saying that being blessed with, with material things is in and of itself wrong. It is not the number of dollars that we possess, but the attitude toward those dollars that determines whether one is rich in the sense in which James is condemning riches or whether he is not. In Mark chapter 10, in Mark chapter 10, verses 23 and 24, the Lord looked about him. He looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. He made that distinction, initially saying how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And when they were astonished at his words, he further elaborated and said, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God. It is not the possession of them. It is the attitude toward them. And incidentally, in that context, he goes on to say it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were astonished again, beyond measure, the text says, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But looking at them, Jesus said, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. It's simply a matter of the attitude that one takes toward those things that are really most important in this life. You remember back in James chapter 1, when we looked at that paradox of poverty and riches in verses 9 through 11, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich, the context indicating the rich brother, let him glory in what? In his humiliation. That is, that he has had enough sense to see where the real important things of life are. The lowly brother exalts and uh, he glories in that he's been exalted to, to an enviable position as a Christian, even though he doesn't have much of what this world uh, offers in terms of material things, but let the rich brother, the one who was rich but still was able to see where the true riches were and became a Christian, he's humbled by the gospel and he's made to realize that as a flower of the field he'll pass away, that his riches are not going to endure, and that he has chosen that better part. As the Lord told Martha about Mary on one occasion, remember, she's chosen the good part. She's chosen the good part, the one thing that won't be taken away from her. And so the rich brother here glories in that he's been humiliated, ironically, because he understands where the true blessings arise, from, which they, from whence they come. And so the key is, in this case, he says, James, your riches, your riches because you are placing your confidence in those riches. They're corrupted. Your garments are moth-eaten. And then he goes on to say, 
Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. You know, we can get a pretty good indication, a very good indication of just how rich we can safely be when we look at a passage that I'm sure you're familiar with from the pen of the Apostle of Love, the Apostle John. Remember as he wrote to Gaius in 3 John, verse 2, Beloved, he said, I pray that in all things you may prosper and be in health even as your soul prospers. I want for you to prosper physically and uh, materially to the extent that your soul is prospering. I want there to be a good balance there, a proper balance. In other words, as long as one's soul prospers, then the more of this world's goods one possesses, the greater one's potential for using that for good. Isn't that the case? Don't you know of, of individuals who have been greatly blessed materially, who because they understand the importance of spiritual things and because their soul prospered as, as their bank account prospered, that they took that bank account and used it for the greatest good? And that's not just true of those who've been blessed with great wealth. Any child of God, any child of God who gives as he or she should, as he or she has been prospered, is doing that very thing. That's what you're doing. As we give, as we have been commanded to give, we are, we are in effect saying, because my soul prospers and I understand the prosperity of the soul and how important that is, I'm going to have the proper attitude toward my material blessings and I'm going to use what I have been blessed with materially to bless others. And I'm addressing a great many folks who are doing just that right here at White Oak. But that's what John tells us. Here's the barometer. Here's the measuring stick for material blessing. How materially blessed you can feel comfortable being. As long as your soul is prospering, then indeed, you can be prospering physically and materially because you're going to use it in the right way. Riches are evil only when they impair the health of the soul and become thorns, as it were, that choke out the wheat. Riches in the text here are regarded as already corrupted already corrupted and spiritually speaking this was already true what a contrast is seen here there are men and women who appear in public in the most dazzling outfits they may be the most attractive in the eyes of men the Hollywood stars and there's so much interest in those in Hollywood as to who wore what dress to what event etc and all of that and there are those who get so caught up in all of that and all of the all of the outward appearance, the symbols of wealth, and yet for those who have placed their trust and their emphasis in those things as far as the Lord and how he sees them, he looks upon that glittering dress as already rotten, already garment, already moth-eaten, ultimately and inevitably to suffer destruction by the moths, and the body which they cover will be consumed by the worms. How tragic it is 
that in the world in which we live tonight, there's so many who have placed their confidence in all of those outward material things. The desire of the heart that some have to adorn the body leads to the soul's eternal destruction in the fire which shall not be quenched. We need to make sure that we keep our priorities where they need to be, don't we? Absolutely sure. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion is going to stand as a witness against you. And it's going to eat your flesh like fire because you've heaped up treasure in the last days. They are corroded. They are rusted. They are rusted through, literally the idea here is, all the way to the bottom. Completely rusted through and rusted out. All the way to the bottom. It's a figurative expression, obviously, because gold and silver don't rust. Gold and silver don't literally rust, but figuratively, James is saying they, <clears throat> though they do not actually rust, these gold and silver coins, and to the natural eye, they may shine very brightly, that by being hoarded by those who trust in them, they become corroded in the sight of God, and thus become a testimony against those who possess them as they stand before God in the judgment. It was a witness to their eventual end. They were going to experience destruction by the fire of God's judgment just as rust, corruption, and decay would ultimately destroy all of their material and earthly goods. You know, rust is a witness to disuse, isn't it? It's a witness to disuse or to improper use. And its existence is evidence that those who possess the rusted goods have mishandled those goods. And that's what James is saying here. And that's what's so vital for us as Christians to always see and to never lose sight of. Just because we may not have a large savings account doesn't mean we can't become in violation of what James is talking about here. You don't have to be rich to violate what James is saying here. It's that desire, isn't it? It's that determination, it's that preoccupation with the things of the world, whether money or whatever it may be. The rust is going to eventually eat the flesh as fire. Now that's obviously a figurative expression. Apparently it means that the silver and gold must eventually suffer destruction when hoarded for a long period of time, and so they must suffer similar destruction in the punishment that awaited them because of their greed, because of their miserly attitude. You know, when you think about it, this text indicates that the gold and silver are visualized by James as being glowing metal, red-hot metal, as it were, or glowing metal that is cl clutched to the heart hugged closely to the heart, hoarded by those who trust in them, and ultimately will actually consume the flesh as they hug it so closely to them. And so as the rust eats through and destroys metal, so the greed and the avarice and the love for money that characterized the people to whom James addressed this part of his epistle would ultimately destroy them. You've heaped up treasure in the last 
days. And no doubt that refers to the period immediately preceding the coming of the Lord in judgment. It's not saying that James thought that coming of the Lord was imminent. No indication of that at all. In fact, we, we know that uh, we do not know when the Lord is coming, but as long as people maintain that attitude and as long as they hoard what they have and love the material, then when the last days are finally here and when that final trump sounds, then their end is depicted here as being absolutely certain. And then in verse 4, Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. The higher the wages of the laborers here depicted, these uh, rich people defrauded their own workers, kept back from their workers, defrauded them, dealt with them uh, unfairly, cheated them, didn't always pay them. And you know, when you go back to the law of Moses, you have specific condemnation of those who would retain the wages of a hired workman for even one night. That was not to be done. Leviticus 19.13 is a passage that condemns such. The exploitation of the worker by the employer and the disposition of the employee to shirk his duties to his employer are both alike dis, uh, condemned and, and uh, discouraged in the sacred writings. In fact, they're clearly condemned. The employer is entitled to a reasonable return on his investment, and the employee is entitled to a decent wage from his employer. And neither should steal from the other in any way, shape, form, or fashion. You know, Paul writes rather extensively about this in the Colossian epistle in Colossians 3 verses 22, 22 through 25 servants obey in all things your masters according to the flesh not with eye service as men pleasers but in sincerity of heart fearing God and whatever you do do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for the wrong which he has done, and there is no partiality. Then it goes on in the next verse, chapter 4, verse 1, to write, Masters, give your servants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And so when the slave and master relationship was still in existence there, Paul regulated it for those who are Christians in a way that where Christian principles were followed, it would do away with the institution of slavery in and of itself if both master and slave followed Christian principles. But we apply that admonition today to the employer-employee relationship, and we do it rightfully so because it has application to that relationship today. And you know, in this verse when it says, when he says, the wages of these laborers which you kept back by fraud, notice he says, cry out, cry out. They yelled to heaven for vengeance. In other words, they're crying out to the God of heaven who will hear and he records the transaction from which the judgment will be rendered in the last day. That employer who deals deceitfully with his employee is not going to get by with it, not for eternity, because the Lord hears the cry and the Lord will render judgment and justice. He'll settle that account 
fairly and justly in the last day. And the word Sabaoth here literally means host, the Lord of hosts. God is identified here as being the Lord of hosts. It's a term that denotes his might. It's a term that denotes his power. It's a term that denotes his glory and reminds us that God is not unmindful of the oppression of the poor. His ears are ever open to their entreaties. He will fully avenge them in the day of judgment. He will settle, as we said, those accounts. And then in verse 5, James goes on to remind these who were certain of eternal destruction because of their attitude toward the things of this life, you have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury or indulgence. You have fattened, literally nourished, you have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. One translation says you've lived delicately, meaning you've led an indolent, fleshly indulgent lifestyle purely for the gratification of the flesh and for the pleasure of a worldly mind. You've been completely consumed by what makes you happy, by what makes you feel good, by what you can get to be comfortable. And that way of living has contributed absolutely nothing to the welfare of others. It's useless and vain. And as we talked about this morning in the lesson, one manner of living that ought to characterize us is not living for self, but living also for others. Now James here describes a group of people that had no interest whatsoever in anyone else, but only how to make life more pleasurable and easier for themselves. Have you thought about the fact that the mere possession of life, the fact that we possess life, creates in us an obligation to perform useful duties with our lives and by our lives? We've been greatly blessed. Ron mentioned in his beautiful prayer earlier, what a blessing it is to know that God created us. He made us. He didn't made us, make us to live the kind of life that James is describing here about these rich people. He made us, he gave us life, and the mere possession of life creates in us an obligation to use that life to add our share to the sum of useful activity in the world. The rich man we talked about this morning didn't get that at all, did he? He didn't get that at all. Luke chapter 12, you remember? Verses 15 through 21. Jesus says, take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life, the fact that you possess life, your life, in other words, does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. Then he spoke that parable of the rich fool to illustrate that, speaking of the ground of this rich man that yielded plentifully and he thought within himself, I don't have any more room to store my crops. What will I do? I'll tear down my barns and build bigger barns and say to my soul, you have many goods for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. That's a, an apt illustration of the very description James is painting here of those who had lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury and that's what this rich man had done. And then it was that God said to him, You fool, 
This night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? And then he makes the application, verse 21. So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not what? Rich toward God. That's the point. We need to be rich toward God. James is addressing a group of people that had no inclination whatsoever to be rich toward God. It was all about taking their pleasure, living wastefully and wantonly in life. And you know something? Those who live for pleasure alone eventually lose the ability to live for any other reason. They become so deeply entrenched in about with getting and having and nourishing their own hearts or fattening their own hearts that they lose sight of everything else. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. What's that about? What's the figure here? I think we know, don't we? It's the figure of animals being fattened for butchering. That's exactly what he's alluding to. Animals, in order to be fattened quickly, are given all they can eat. And here the hearts of these are said to be fattened. In other words, they've been supplied with everything they've desired. They've got it all, and they're eating to their heart's content, and they're enjoying all of these things in this world to their heart's content, and they're fattening their own hearts. But what they did not take into account was the fact that they were simply fattening themselves for a day of slaughter. It's a very, a very graphic description that James gives. And what slaughter would it be? Their own. Their own slaughter. And you know the irony of all of this is they probably viewed themselves as being very wise in doing this. They probably felt very good about what they were doing. But that was not the real measure of such a life. Is the pig wise, which follows a few grains of corn from the hog pen to the slaughterhouse? Is that wise? Neither is the man who fattens his heart with the things of this world at the expense of his soul. And that's what myriads of people tonight are doing, tragically. And finally, verse 6, you have condemned... You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. You have murdered the just. Who is the just? The American Standard translation renders it righteous and adds in italics the word one, O-N-E, the righteous one. And some have taken that to mean that James was referring to the type of attitude evident here in these Jews that had led to the murder of the righteous one, as he is often called in Scripture, Jesus Christ. Others have taken the view that James was simply saying the righteous man in contrast with the wicked man. He doth not resist you. Perhaps that's evidence that the righteous one does refer to Christ because Christ did not resist his antagonist, did he? but he submitted himself to their persecution without complaining. Remember what Isaiah said in his prophecy about the Christ in Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed, yet when he was afflicted, he opened not his mouth as a lamb that is led to the slaughter, 
And as a sheep that before its shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. But regardless of what James had in mind here, the principle is the same. They had no concern at all for the righteous, but only concern for themselves. And so James, in these verses of chapter 5, as we've seen tonight, deals with the rich and their love for the material things of the world. And as we said at the outset, there's so much teaching along this line in Scripture, and we dare not ignore it. We must never lose sight of it because the moment we do, Satan will move in and he'll distract us and ultimately destroy us by worldliness that is manifested in so many ways. Yes, by both rich and poor. And as we close, think about this. Those who refuse to obey the gospel and those who refuse to live their lives for the Lord really demonstrate an attitude of materialism, do they not? Do they not demonstrate an attitude of worldliness by not completely giving their lives over to the Lord? They're content with the things of the world for their happiness without looking to Christ, the giver of true blessings, or they give nominal service to Him, thinking that that will suffice. And as we pointed out this morning in Bible class, the Lord demands all. That is a full commitment, denying self and embracing Him dethroning self from the heart and enthroning the Savior in the heart. Living in the flesh, but not of the flesh. Where are you tonight? We're all rich by comparison to someone, aren't we? We all have been blessed to some degree with material things. The key is, what is our attitude toward what we have and how are we using it? And we have all been blessed to hear the gospel of Christ We've all been blessed to have opportunity to obey it. And if you haven't availed yourself of that wonderful privilege beyond description, we plead with you to do that tonight by believing that Jesus is the Christ, repenting of your sins, confessing him as the Christ, and being buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. If you've done that but you know tonight your life does not reflect a life that has left the world behind and has focused on the next world, then come home to your first love and leave the world behind again as you once did as the Lord forgives and as we pray for you to the Lord who loves you and has promised to forgive. As we stand to sing, will you come?